Good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you could join us for worship today. We are excited about what God is going to say to us. I'm excited about this message. Uh, so I did something this week that I don't normally do uh, when writing a message. I, I had this idea of where I was going to go. You know, last week we talked about tithing and we went through a bunch of different passages. We'll reference that in a minute. And I decided I was going to talk about 2 Corinthians 9 this week. But then I started looking at 2 Corinthians 8, and I was like, I can't talk about 2 Corinthians 9 unless I first talk about 2 Corinthians 8, but I'd already started writing the sermon in 2 Corinthians 9, so I was at a quandary. What do I do? So I just wrote 2 Corinthians 8 into it. Well, then I started to look at it, and I'm like, you have 12 pages of notes, and you normally have seven, and you go over so unless you plan on preparing lunch and breaking some bread and passing some fishes, we've got to do something. So I actually had to cut the message in two, and so we'll be in 2 Corinthians 8 today and 2 Corinthians 9 next week, and so we, we, they're going to play in together. There's a difference. This week we're looking at a picture, a, a picture of sacrificial giving, and next week we'll look at principles of sacrificial giving. Uh, so that's kind of where we are right now. Uh, I have... If you didn't notice, my, my lovely theologian in training, Michaela, is back today. And so, yeah. <laughs> and as, as college students are wont to do, um, you know, she, she's here and she's going to go back, but there's always a need for, what does is, what is, what is a college student constantly need besides ramen noodles? Money, right? So I've got some money for Michaela this morning, but... Because I don't carry cash, I've got a thing of quarters upstairs in my room. And so what we have here is $25 in quarters. All right? Right there. Michaela, here's a bag for your quarters. Thank you. You're welcome. You're right. So whose quarters, these, these I've given these. So whose quarters are these? Well, you've given to me, them to me, so I assume me. Yeah, they're yours, but really they're mine, right? That's true. Just like all the rest of the money you have. Um, <laughs> so, but anyways, so Michaela, Michaela has just been given this gift of $25. You'll notice that they are nicely stacked into 10 stacks of um, quarters, right? 10 stacks of 10 quarters. So, that's right, right? Okay, at one point I was going to do 100 stacks, but I was like, that's ridiculous, um, even for me. Uh, so, we've got these quarters here, so... This is yours. This is Michaela's, right? Now, if we were going to do tithing, now it just happens that we gave them to her here at church. If we were, she was to tithe this, how, much of, how many of these quarters does she have to give? How many stacks? One stack, right? So in tithing, this one stack right here, she would give in the offering on her way out, and the rest would be hers, right? Ten, ten quarters would be how much money? Just checking, right? That's good. I actually had to do it on the calculator. It's $2.50, <laughs> right? So <laughs> I'm glad that you all are just as bad at math as I am. <laughs> That's why we, we love each other here, right? God's going to take care of it, guys. It doesn't matter how much money is there. Anyway, so we've got one. That would be how, what percent? 10%. But we talked last week about tithing and what was the final point of the message? Anybody remember? Nobody, what did you say? Tithing is not a New Testament principle. So that means 
that this 10% is not necessarily owed to God, right? That's Michaela's money, right? So then how much should Michaela give to God? What did you say, Larry? Whatever is in her heart, right? Now, she's a college student, right? So she's got certain bills she's got to take, take care of. So say, say she's got a book fee that she's got to take care of, and that's going, to take, that's going to take $5. Now, she works in the library, so that's not a late fee. That's not a late fee, right? That's right. Um, but she occasionally does park in the wrong spot, so maybe she's got, like a, she's got a, a $5 fine that she's got to take care of, but that's only going to happen once, right? So now Michaela still has this. So Michaela, as you look at this money, how much money would you decide to give to the Lord? Put you on the spot. How much is all that? <laughs> I don't know. It's two fifty each stack. Like make it five, ten. It's fifteen dollars. Okay. So how much would you choose? Now everybody's going to judge you based on your answer. So <laughs> just know that. <laughs> Yep, how much you want to give? So she's going to give $5, right? So of the money she has left, that's like 33% of what she has, right? That's pretty good. That's a pretty good gift. And that might be what she would have given if you didn't know, but we don't know. That's what she's given. That's pretty good. Now, the rest of that's hers. Now, let me ask again, how much of this money is Michaela's? How much of this money is the Lord's? That's exactly right. All of this money is the Lord's. So it doesn't matter that this money is now given to the church and this money is given to Grace College, which consequently is a theological institution and a nonprofit doing the work of God. But this money here, however Michaela uses this, is to her discretion. But in honesty, all of the money was to her discretion. The the reality is her giving isn't determined based upon a rote 10% in the law. But it's based really, and we're going to see this today and next week, it's based upon two things. How much money does Michaela have? How much money is she legitimately able to give? And three, how much does she decide within her heart that she's going to give? But ultimately, whose decision is it? It's Michaela's. It's completely between she and God. Spoiler alert, that's the point for next week's message. Decide what you're going to give. Hey, this is yours. You take the money. Like, you get to keep that. That's for you. I'm going to use this for my microwavable mac and cheese. There there you go. go. That's a wise expenditure of funds. Here, just take the bag and go like this. I don't have enough hands. It's like the game at Chuck E. Cheese where you put the quarter in and you, you get as much out as you can. You never win, so you at least win here. All right. Everybody say thanks to Michaela as she steps off the stage. We're going to look at this because we've just seen a picture of what sacrificial giving looks like, right? To give 33% of one's income. And full disclosure, I did not prompt her. I told her yesterday we were going to do this, and this morning I I was thinking about using someone else. And this morning I was like, hey, Michaela, it's going to be you. So she didn't have time to, like, process. That was her choice. But we're going to look at another picture of sacrificial giving in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to process what that might look like for us and what those principles mean and how they apply to us today. If you have a Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to read verses 1 through 15. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. It says this. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. 
In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ... That though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there... The gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we break this passage down. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. I thank you for your great love with which you have loved us. Lord, I thank you for what we're even going to see and have just read in this text, Lord, that, that our generosity is only a reflection of the generosity that you yourself have shown to us and continue to show to us. God, I pray that you would stir in us hearts of generosity, hearts that desire to give graciously, God, may it not be seen as a burden, but a privilege. May we see the example of the Macedonians this morning, and may we follow their example just as they followed yours. Speak to us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Paul starts at the beginning of of the chapter by breaking down who it is that he's going to write about, right? He tells them in verse 1, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And then immediately following that, he begins talking about their giving. Again, we talked a little bit about this last week, and and we'll continue to touch upon it because we need to remember this. What we give flows from grace that has been given. What we give flows from grace that has been given. Even when we went back and we looked at tithing, right? The The whole concept of tithing was a recognition that what we have to give in the first place was a gift from God. Much like my example this morning as I put it on the table, Michaela had nothing to give had I not given it to her. The grace she could offer was the result of a grace that had been displayed. And I would argue that that is always the case for us in the Bible, whether it it comes to dealing with our finances or or our physical abilities or our material resources, whatever you want want to put it into. The The grace that God gives us should result in grace flowing through us. 
The grace that God gives us, that amazing grace that we love to sing about, we should not be a stopgap in that grace. In any, in any realm, whether it's the grace of the gospel, the salvation that we've been given, there should be a desire, a burning, a yearning within us to share that grace with others. Which really makes sense that if we believe that God truly did what he said he did and that the, the Bible is true and that the Bible can be trusted and that the commands of Jesus are, are for real and what Jesus did really changes our life and that there's truly eternal salvation as a result of God's gift of grace and sins or without God's gift of grace there's eternal hellfire then we should be extremely motivated to share that grace. If not, how hateful are we? If not, do we really understand the grace of God? And the truth is that our application of that understanding of God's grace should flow to every area of our lives. One of my struggles with talking about, this, this is what I'm saying right now, isn't even in my notes, but one of the things that I struggle with when we talk about the idea of giving and, and it's something we've got to talk about because it's, the church has bills, right? And we have th- these things that we do don't happen for free. We've got to pay to do certain things. So we've got to talk about it. But one of the things that I don't like is when we talk about it, we think that we can throw money in the plate and then that's the end. We've met our responsibilities to the Lord. We come sit in a pew, we throw money in, and then it's to the ministers to do ministry. That is not so. The grace of God to you should result in grace flowing through you in in the way that you use your money, in the way that you use your material possessions, but also in the ministry that you do to others, the grace that you show to others. Now, Paul provides his Corinthian leaders, though, in this case, he's talking about this grace of giving, and he provides this, this this example of this Macedonian network of churches. Now, the Macedonian churches were churches planted during Paul's second missionary journeys. They included Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Now, you note that Paul tells us in the passage that they are, in verse 2 it says, that they're in the midst of a very severe trial. A very severe trial. Which has been the case for the Macedonian churches from the word go. From the the very inception, turn with me right quick, we're going to flip back because I want you to see this so that you have context, to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, we find Paul in Philippi, on his missionary journey with Silas. So what does it tell us in Acts 16? Look at verse 16. It says this, Acts 16, 16, it says, Once while they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. And she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. And she followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in on the attack against Paul and Cyrus, Silas. excuse me, And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. So let's stop there for a second. Paul and Silas are just preaching the gospel. 
They've had pretty good success if you go back to the preceding verses with some, some people, a few, a few prominent people in the community coming to Christ. But the gospel, everywhere Paul and Silas and Barnabas and, and Peter are going, the gospel is just blowing up everywhere and people are getting saved. So note that the wrong that Paul does in this, in this instance is he heals a woman of demon possession. And, and as a result of this grace that he demonstrates, they take him to jail and they strip him naked and beat the tar out of him, then throw him in jail. Right? We, we, if you don't know the rest of the story, I'm going to just kind of explain it. They go to jail in the middle of the night. The, the Lord shakes the cells as they're, they're singing in stock, the stockades. They break free, and, and they could walk out, but they don't. They stay there, and they make them come. But they, when they come to them, the, the, the city officials say, hey, just go. Just don't stay here. So Paul and Silas are forced, after this incident, to, to get up and leave the city. And this young fledgling church and these new Christians are left to deal with the, the ramifications of, of what has been stirred in that area. So we see the starting of the Philippi church. It starts, God does amazing things, persecution breaks out, right? So Paul and Silas move on to another city. Look down just a little bit in chapter 17, Thessalonica. It says, when Paul and his companions had pam- passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining, proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and others post bond and let them go. So we see again, Paul goes to another city, he preaches the gospel, people start accepting the grace of God, and people get jealous because Paul is having success. So what do they do? They do what the Hebrew people did in the book of Acts. They formed a mob, they start a riot, they go and take Jason captive, and subsequently they tell Paul to leave. It tells us that they, they got assurities from him. What that, what that means is they got money from them guaranteeing that they would leave town. So church starts. Paul goes to a new city. He's there for a while, three weeks at least in the passage, it tells us. A bunch of people come to Christ. They, they, these Jews get jealous over what's going on, and so they, they take Paul's host ransom, they hostage, they force him to pay a fine, and Paul and Silas are sent on their way again. So Paul and Silas leave young town, young church, persecution, going crazy. So where do they go? They go to Berea. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas on their way from Thessalonica to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of a more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was say, said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. So we see it again. 
These first three churches. So these, these are the churches. We can turn back to Corinthians now. These are the churches that we talk about. When it talks about the Macedonian churches, we know a few things about them. One, we know that, that there are a few prominent women that tells us, business women in the community that have come to Christ. But by and large, the rest of the people that are coming to Christ in these towns are poor. The gospel throughout the New Testament, it drew a lot of the outcast and the marginalized, which shouldn't surprise us because it's what happened with Jesus. It infuriated those that were comfortable and rich, but those that were poor and on the outcast, those that were oppressed, Jesus offered a way in and it infuriated the people. We see the same thing happening here. And so this, these young churches, fresh out the gate, are dealing with persecution right away. Right away. Paul notes that these Christians in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 8 were facing extreme poverty and severe trial, right? But that in spite of their difficult circumstances, they had, quote, overwhelming joy, which, quote, welled up in rich generosity. You have a bunch of poor, persecuted people that are digging deep in their pockets to give to the work of the Lord. And, and not even just the work of the Lord in their community. They're given to Paul's missionary journeys. And part of what they're giving is going back to the home church, the mother church in Jerusalem, to deal with poverty that they're facing there. Rather than being discouraged by their dire circumstances, rather than being, being frustrated by the persecution and the oppression that they're, they're facing, even following their conversion to Christ, these Christians were inspired by the riches of God's grace to them and found joy in giving. The fact is they saw even the act of giving as being a grace of God. That's what Paul's talking about when, he's, when he says this. When he talks about in verse 1, hey, let me talk to you about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. He's not talking about their circumstances. He's talking about their, their drive to give. It is the act of giving that is the grace that is being demonstrated in the Macedonian churches that Paul wants this Corinthian church, these Corinthian churches to see and then emulate. Giving to the work of God was viewed as itself a gift of God's grace. Do we view giving to the Lord in the same way? Do we? Because we should. Next thing that we see as this goes on, sacrificial giving to the work of God for the glory of God should be seen as a privilege, not an obligatory burden. Sacrificial giving to the work of God for the glory of God should be seen as a privilege, not as an obligatory burden. Now note, in this text, there is no command or requirement given concerning who should give what. It's not a tithe of 10%. Paul doesn't tell the Corinthian churches, hey, you need to give 10% of your income to this thing. The fact of the matter is these Jews, we talked about this last week, these Jews that had converted to Christianity were still ethnically Jews. They still owed a certain portion of their, their income to the temple, to, to the work of God in, in Jerusalem, there was, or, or to the synagogue. There was something they had to give. I mean, even Paul constantly going into the synagogue and teaching there would cause them to have to pay a, a, an offering in the synagogue itself. So anything that they're giving is above and beyond what they've already given in this other area. Now we see in verse 3, Paul kind of gives us some principles. I testify, he says in verse 3, that they gave as much as they were able, 
and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. What they gave was based upon what they had and the reality at times of what their needs would allow. And it's clear that that in this case, their giving was sacrificial in nature. And Paul commends them for it. Paul sees this as commendable, that these people are giving to, to to the limit and then giving even a little bit beyond that. Why did they give? They gave because they wanted to. Not because they had to, not because they were under obligation, not because that they were worried that God was watching their, their checkbook, and we're going to talk about next week the whole idea, because if you flip it over to chapter 9, it talks about whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. So it's not that they were worried that if, if I didn't put enough in, uh, into the plate, that God wasn't going to continue to bless me financially. That wasn't the concern. Their concern was the joy of giving. Just the, the, the pure joy of expressing generosity and recognizing the grace of God and playing a part in that work. That's awesome. And I want us to note this. Because in this context, we see that giving was an honor for which they aggressively asked. It says entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. They begged Paul for the opportunity to give. I can only imagine what that conversation must go like. I've never had it. (laughs) You know, the the questions I normally get are, and this is not meant to be a stone too much, but, you know, how much do I have to give? Like, just 10%, right? Like, I don't care what you give, but God says we're supposed to give sacrificially. I'm just saying, Jesus is the model, and... He died, so like, you do the math on that. Like, whatever God lays on your heart, that's between you. But it, we, we, we normally, and I'll be honest, I've done it too. Like, how little do I, can I get away with giving? That's really what we as Americans often think of. How, how, how little can I get away with giving the Lord so I have the rest? We tend to actually operate more like kids in, in, in the grocery store. You know, when, when they're driving, they're walking along, and, and people are, you know, these stores know what they're doing. You're, you're walking down the aisle, and, and there's that toy, and, and it's a junk toy, but the kid sees it, right? And they're like, Mom, I need that toy. I need it, right? Please let me have that toy. I'll never ask for anything ever again. Mom, can I have gum? And, and I don't know, maybe in your family it was different. We always asked Mom, because Dad was like, no. Right? Mom. Mom was the one that would give in. In our house, it's dad, right? Robin's like, that's not me. I need it. Is that not kind of how we approach God in the context of the financial arena? Lord, I'm so broke. God, give me this day what I need. Which is fine. Like, don't get me wrong. We are to call out to God. We are to, to express to him our needs. But we're so busy oftentimes expressing our needs and our desires that, that we lose track of the reality of the privilege that it is to give and be a part of what God is doing. We forget that part of it. Or, or we marginalize it. I can only imagine again what it's like for someone to come to me and be like, Hey, Dr. Myers, hey, I really... I really would. Actually, I've had it once now that I think of it. We had a man in our church uh, when I was in North Webster, Indiana, and I had just gotten back from a youth trip, and I was spent. I was done. I did not want to have the conversation, and he always had all these ideas, and he came, and he said, hey, Jeremy, can I talk to you today? And I wanted to say, no, I don't want to talk to you. 
But I was like, sure, man, come on in, let's have the conversation. So he comes in, he's like, I got this idea for this outreach program that we're going to do, and I'm going to give $50,000 to pay for the whole thing, and we're going to buy this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this. And I'm like, dude, I lost you at, I have an idea. <laughs> he's like, well, do you think we could do something like that? And I said, buddy, honestly, right now, it doesn't fit in with what we're trying to do. It's a good idea. I appreciate the offer but really not where we're going right now. He said, oh, okay. Well, could you still take the $50,000? Could you use that in some way? And I was like, duh. <laughs> done and done. We'll take that money. That's not the conversation we have. Can I please give to what the church is doing? Please can I give to, to this ministry? This, can I please give to the operational expenses of First Baptist Church? Never had that conversation. But I'm going to tell you the answer, just so you don't come and ask me afterwards. I know some of you now are like, I've got to have this conversation. The answer is yes. I will take your money, however much or however little, in the, for the glory of God and in Jesus' name. Amen. But think about this. These, these Macedonian Christians are urgently pleading with Paul for the opportunity to give. It's a stark contrast of what many pastors experience today when talking about the topic of giving. Many of us feel anxiety about it because it's, it's reversed. The role is reversed. The, the accus accusation that we get is, well, I don't want to go to that church because they're always begging for money. In this passage, it's the church begging to give, not the, the preacher begging to get. What a paradigm shift. That's what we see is they urgently pleaded for the privilege, was seen as a privilege of sharing in the service. Verse 5, it says, and they exceeded our expectations. Well, that kind of seems like a no-duh statement to me. Can we just deal with that for a brief second? And they exceeded our expectations. They had to beg you to give. So your expectations were zero. Anything exceeded your expectations, Paul. Hello, Captain Obvious. But they exceeded our expectations. Well, he explains. How did they exceed their expectations? They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. Commitment to Christ and faith in his power and provision freed these believers to give themselves to God and the work of the Lord through Paul and company. Their sacrificial giving demonstrated their deep faith in God's continued goodness and grace to them. They believed that he would provide what they needed, just as he'd already done. And their sacrificial giving demonstrated deep dedication to the work of the gospel through the people of God and his ministers. The, what, what this is saying is they gave to the offering that was going to go to Jerusalem, but they also wanted to provide for Paul while they were doing it. It was a both-and thing. It wasn't enough for these people to just give part of it to the Lord and to entrust that to, him, to, the, to, to them for him, but they also wanted to give to this, this other thing. So these people are giving. It's grace upon grace upon grace and generosity upon generosity. These people truly are living the, this joy in their generosity. And Paul is, is pumped by this. Paul's inspired by this. Now, we, we would have trouble with where he goes next. This whole thing would not, this whole passage would not flow in an American context. Because what does Paul do? 
Paul sees the generosity of the Macedonian church, and he's like, you know what? I'm going to send Titus to tell the Corinthian church how generous the Macedonian church is, and let's see how they respond. And he doesn't even hide it. He says, so we urge Titus, just as he had early made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. They give, they gave, and you gave first, but you didn't finish it. That's okay. I'm going to help you. Here's Titus. He'll take your money. And he said, but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. In the modern world, we might be prone to believe that Paul is laying a guilt trip on these Corinthian churches. Right after noting that the Macedonian churches exceeded his expectations, Paul lays out his expectations for the Corinthian church, also stating that he has no expectations for the Corinthian church. Only that they complete a similar act of grace through giving that they also want to do. He says, hey, I'm, verse 8, I'm not commanding you, but this is a test. <laughs> I'm not commanding you, but this is a test. Well, how judgmental of Paul. How dare he? Has he not read Jesus? Does he not know in the Gospels where it says, judge not lest you be judged, Paul? I would love to have been in the room when someone threw that accusation at the Apostle Paul who literally wrote the New Testament. That would have been a great conversation. I mean, he has a woman walking around behind him in Acts, right, hyping him up. Hey, these men are servants of the Most High God. And Paul goes, if you'll excuse me, would you shut up, please? Imagine someone who's actually being confrontational with him about his message. Not commanding you. Now, what, what do we get from this? What we devote... What we devote the substance of our lives to, whether it be our finances, our time, our talents, our energy, our efforts, will it will demonstrate what we love and where our true loyalties lie. Paul says this is a test. Now you can, you've heard it said in a message before, I'm sure, whether here or somewhere else, show me your checkbook and I'll show you what you love. Show me your checkbook and I'll show you what you love. I'll put us on... Uh, out in the front, that is true with the, the Myers family. If you look at our checkbook, you will see what the Myers family loves. If you were to re review the Myers family yearly expenses, you, you'd see several things that, that are important to us, right? So we, we spend a good portion of our income right now. Anyone want to guess what one of the biggest expenditures in our household is at the moment? I just had a college student standing on the stage. <laughs> Grace College gets a good chunk of our change. Right? That, that's a really important thing to Michaela. Beyond that, JJ is in every possible school event that he could possibly be in. That takes money. I'm guessing there, there are several people in the house today that can relate to that reality. The struggle is real. But, but further, there are various interests in, in, for each family member in the house. JJ, anything we spend on JJ at the moment is around his love for computers. Right? Got to have this thing or that thing. Again, Michaela's are our college. Robin's expenses go to the devotion to clean eating. Uh, mine center around books and, and things of that nature. But there's one area where you look and you'll notice that the Myers family all spends a good deal of money on the same thing. Does anyone want to guess what it is? Say it louder. 
shoes. Oh, the Myers family has a love affair with footwear. Yeah, you, anyone that knows me know this, knows this is true. We love shoes. We, we take all of the money that we get for Christmas, at least we have in the past, we save it as cash. And any miscellaneous cash we get, we put into a drawer at home. So when it is time for us to go to Florida and we go to the, the shoe stores, we can buy as many shoes as we want, and they are our Christmas and our birthday presents, and we don't feel guilty about it. It is what it is. I don't, and I don't care what you think. It's, I'm going to spend my money. The Lord has given me that money for my enjoyment and for his glory. And that is the point, the part where we decided as a family, we're willing to spend some money. And every year our shoe collection grows. Now, if you look at that, though, there are other places that expenditures go, whether it be for, from giving to missions, giving to this very church. We do. We give a check at, every week to, well, that we remember, or we give several checks on other weeks because we didn't give it on the one week, and it comes to the church. We give to the church just like you do. But you can see that in our checkbook. You can see the things that we care about in our resources, and I would argue the same thing is true for you. While our works play no part in determining our salvation, Paul makes it clear here that they do play a, a role in demonstrating our devotion to the Lord. That what we do and what we give in particular does demonstrate to a degree our devotion to the Lord. He says it clearly. I'm going to use this as a test. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. I, I, I'm going to compare, uh, just so you know, this is what they give, and they are broke. They're persecuted, and you, the Corinthian church, are wealthy and live in large. And I'm, I'm sending Titus to you to collect your gift that you promised, and I'm going to take that gift, and I'm going to compare it against the giving of the Macedonian church. And we're going to see, do you really love God like you say you do? I'll be honest, there's a part of me that's uncomfortable with that. But this is the inspired word of God. So apparently there is some evaluation that needs to take place, that we need to evaluate how we are utilizing the resources of our life and make sure that we are making an investment in the work of God in a way that demonstrates that that is in fact important to us. Paul makes it clear that that's what he's doing. So the question must be asked, does the stewardship of our finances and the rest of the assets of our life demonstrate that serving the Lord is something that matters to us? Does it even make the cut of the things that we care about? Now that's between you and Jesus. I'm not going to make an evaluation on that. But what does it show? Our willingness to support the work of the Lord does demonstrate to some degree the truth of our love for Christ, our love for his gospel, and those he came to save. And Paul tells these Christians that sacrificial giving is a way to answer the question, what would Jesus do? Because we know. Paul tells them in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The life Christ lived... And the death he died are not only the means through which God purchased our salvation, but they are the model of sacrificial grace that should determine how we live as God molds us into his image. 
Paul is very clearly telling these Christians, this is what Jesus did, go do likewise. Which we see throughout the letters of Paul, that the reality of Christ sacrificing of himself, his very life, if Christ gave up his life for us, do we have anything that we have a right to hold back from him? Not a rhetorical question. If Christ sacrificed his life for us to purchase our salvation, is there anything that we have a right to hold back from him? No, nothing. It is all his. We belong to him. The, the freedom that we have in Christ, yes, is a, is a freedom to not serve, but we could have done that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The freedom that Christ has given us through his grace is a freedom to serve. It's a freedom to, to invest and be a part in his gospel and his glorious work. Again, giving is, and, and as we look, Paul again contextualizes. He says, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable, verse 12, according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. God isn't looking at you and saying, you've got to give this much because you, you do this or that or the other. God wants us to give out of willing hearts. God wants us to give because we want to give. God wants us to give because, just like the Macedonians, there's a joy behind it. I, I, I so often, I'm seeing this in the Bible now, that, that as we look at the people that are giving, whether it's a few weeks ago when we looked at those giving to the temple or, or those giving in the, the New Testament here to the work of Paul and to the, the, those that they had no idea about in Jerusalem, they, they never met them. In both cases, it's seen as a privilege and as a joy, it's not something that, that either David or Paul have trepidation about sharing with or pushing for. They're like, hey, I don't want you to miss out on this. Have I got a deal for you? You get to take part in sharing the grace of God in this way. Mind blown, you're welcome. In our modern context, it's like, hey, listen, if you don't mind, I don't want to offend you. And I know that we talk about giving, and I know that we're sensitive about that, but if you wouldn't mind giving a little bit to the church, we could really use the help. I refuse to do that anymore. The Bible, over and over and over again, giving is determined by what one has and what one desires to give, not some, some rote sense of obligation. We should give because God has given to us and because we see it as a joy and a privilege to give to what God is doing. And the goal isn't to burden anyone. Paul notes that in verses 13 through 15. It's not to burden one group to care for another, but for each of us to help share in the load, to provide for ministry to happen, and to care for one another. This is the picture we see in the life of the Macedonian church. This is the picture that Paul painted for the Corinthian churches. This picture of extravagant generosity regardless of circumstances. This idea of understanding that what we have is ours and we can determine what we do with it. But understanding that what we have is a gift of God's grace and that even giving of that is a gift of God's grace. The New Testament principle of giving is not a tithe. It is sacrificial giving. It is understanding that everything we have and everything we are belong to God, should be devoted to Him. 
And that giving a portion of that specifically to the work he is doing should be seen as a privilege and an honor, not an obligation. May God make that so in our lives. May we see the example of the Macedonian church. May we own that for ourselves and may we ourselves experience the joy and the grace that is giving to the work of God for the glory of God, for the salvation of the world. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. I thank you for the the honor and privilege of being a part of your people, of being one of your children, of joining in the work that you are doing in the here and now. God, we know that, that even some of the concepts in this message seem scandalous to us this morning, but grace is in fact scandalous. That God Almighty would leave his throne in the glories of heaven and come down to the ball of dirt that he himself has created as one of his creations in order that he might suffer unspeakable atrocities and injustices in order to purchase the salvation needed of the very people that cost him his life. Oh, what amazing grace, God. May we understand and know that grace. May we be motivated and mobilized by it. May we offer ourselves anew to you today for your good and glory and for the good of the world you came to save. God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.